I stole a car on December 4th, 1981, and the Philadelphia police caught me and they beat me savagely. Torture taught me how to love. Torture taught me how to become humbled and respect. There are 60,000 people sitting in prison right now who are completely innocent. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Now, today's guest was on the show four years ago, and this one episode that we filmed changed the way that I approached podcasting. He truly has a remarkable story. He's an American writer who spent 22 years on death row in Pennsylvania after being wrongfully convicted of murder. In July 1982, age 21, he was sentenced to death. He escaped custody while being transported to a post-sentence hearing, but was arrested in Florida about a month later, where he identified himself and returned to Pennsylvania's death row. Numerous appeals and post-conviction challenges proved unavailing. During his time in prison, he taught himself to read and became the first death row prisoner to seek DNA testing. In 2003, with the aid of a team of court-appointed lawyers, including Christina Swans, later to become the executive director of the National Innocence Project, a third round of DNA testing proved that two unidentified men, not this man, had committed the crime. In January 2004, after clearing the escape-related charges, he was released. He's an incredible human being, somebody I have so much respect for. And if you've been following this podcast for a while, you know who this guy is. But he's face to face with me today in the UK for the first time. And I can't wait to catch up with him. Cue the music for the incredible human being, somebody I have bags of respect for and admire greatly, Mr. Nick Yaris. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Welcome to the podcast. I, I, it's a bit weird for me, this. I interviewed you in lockdown. And I, I, I'm going to tell you, because I've never told you this. I, I started a podcast that was about personal development. And so people like Tony Robbins were guests on the show. And I went down a path of, and Tony Robbins came to Dubai and spent time and he was amazing. And he said, don't meet your heroes. But I met him and it was just, we had such a wonderful time. I was really happy with the journey I was on. I was exposed to people that knew more than me, I could learn from, that were wiser than me in business. So I got the benefit of not only gleaning information from them, but also having them as a guest on the show. And then one day, like one day, somebody said to me, did you see that thing on Netflix? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they said, it's called The Fear of 13. I won't tell you anything about it, but go watch it. And I'm, not, and I'm, I'm the guy that sits there in the office going, what the, what's that all about? You know, what is it? Don't even make any sense, The Fear of 13. Well, 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 it doesn't make sense. Anyway, that evening I went home and watched it. And at that time with the podcast, it was very, it was it was small compared to what it is now. And I heard that, and I, and I watched you talk, and you captured me as a storyteller. You, I, I, I was literally in that movie with you. Every minute of what you were talking about, I was, I was there. 
I don't know why, but I have this fascination with what it must be like. So two parts to that. Number one, I've been to prison myself, but for five hours. And those five hours in prison, okay, although is nothing compared to anyone else, was the most terrifying experience of my life, which I will remember with fine detail for the rest of my life. So anytime I think of anyone in prison, it takes me straight to that five-hour part of my life. Trauma. Okay. Secondly, I, I just knew, you moved me so much, I just knew that I needed to be exposed to you in some way. And then you came on the show and we were, it was the first time I'd ever done a Facebook Live with a guest on a podcast. So it's the first time I'd ever done that. And the way I describe it is as follows. Nick Yaris, I introduce you. I asked Nick Yaris, if you watch the interview, I think I asked him three questions. And then I shut up. And he spoke. And I sat there with my jaw open for 45 minutes. And whenever I say that, the people that watched it at the same time with me that were live that day were like, we have never, ever heard anything like it. Some were disgusted. Some were angry at various parts of society and governmental organisations. Some were uh, compassionate. Some really were feeling your pain. Some, some wanted a get up and do something about it, to fight against it. All of these different, like, but really strong emotions that was all from that one conversation. And in that conversation, that was the day my podcast became a real podcast. Because that was the day that I realised that I wanted everybody in the world to hear stories like this so that people could become more aware of what goes on out there. So I just want to say, before we even get started... I am so really grateful for the difference that you made and you have no idea how much of a fanboy of yours I am and how I'm really grateful that you've made the time to come and talk to us today to our much bigger audience than we had all those years ago. I'll tell you now the other side of all that. Tony Robbins is exactly what you said. His wife, Sage, is an amazing, lovely woman the two of them in the past uh, actually tried to arrange to have um, a very noted actor um, play me in the role of, of the film that's being made about my life. When I met you, I never knew you would change my life so dramatically. I had no idea that listening wasn't just the anger and the upheaval and the, the feelings. There were some people with thoughtfulness listening. One of them, Alice, reached out to me and said, I listened very keenly to your efforts to go and get your friend Walter off a of death row. I think that's amazing. I would like to introduce you to a friend of mine who I think could really help. The next thing I know, one of the sharpest businessmen in the world, author, pops up. The next thing I know, against the upheaval of becoming homeless 
and having to move into the national forest with my family because of the pandemic where our landlord didn't want to hear about not being paid. And we had to literally move into the woods in a rented caravan. And just before all of that struck, I was in a garage. There's a image behind me of a curtain that's hanging up covering a wall yeah this is all real to the point that this i this is why i'd love to come here i feel like peachy in the beautiful novel the man who would be king by rudyard kipling after so many years he comes back and finds the journalist that they met initially on the train and boasted about what they were going to do as kings I feel that battered sense, but at the same time, I'm so much more and, and I'm so dynamically aware of what you are in terms of meaning in my life. You see, because I never got to make the documentary about getting my friend Walter off a of death row. I'm not allowed around him because they think he's going to get millions of dollars and they're protecting him from me. Strange. But I did get this beautiful opportunity to make a documentary called Life After Death in which I drove across America, visited my father who just died two weeks ago. I went and visited my mother's grave. I went to the prison where I was stabbed violently. And then I culminated it all with the visit to the exact area where I, I was raped as a little boy. I finished all my filming. I drove back across America through a blizzard. I went back to Oregon, and then I got a chance to do a podcast called The Soft White Underbelly. So you see, in a linear form, from that point to the point where I ended up doing my last podcast in America, which was The Soft White Underbelly, you gave me the keys to meet the people who allowed me to do extraordinary things. If I am to truly believe that none of this is by happenstance, that there is a rhythmic purpose to life and it's all connected and we have to just pay attention, then I have to believe from the moment that God struck the courthouse the day that they found me guilty and knocked the power out and stopped their little parade to this point where I've overcome so much physically in the 19 years of my freedom, I really do have no fears going forward. And I believe that I did the right thing. When I left America, I gave away my RV to a family that had an autistic child. And then I gave away my automobile and all my belongings knowing that I would have a, a tough start, right? In only two months of being in England, over 100 million people heard my message. And the only way I could have accomplished that was by letting go. You remember what I told you about feelings and how you, you're not allowed to take your cape off for feelings. So you put a cape on for strength. You take it off for feelings. You'll never get it back. I was so fortunate along our journey over the last couple of years that when I caught you when you were down, I pointed out to you, no, brother, you're not allowed. 
You see, there's living witnesses even in this building today that rely on you to never take the cape off because you instilled in them the brilliant hope that you shine. Don't you ever take that from anyone because it cannot be repaired. You can't self-indulge. I have, for the last 16 hours of my life, thought about what I wanted to say to you. One, thank you for being my friend. Not enough people say this to each other. Two, I admire the effort you're making in the documentary field, in the podcasting field, and in the teaching field, which is far more greater than just the business aspect of it all, isn't it? Because some of your most brightest guests have nothing to do with business, and yet their loudest message has rung true with you. So now you're teaching their message. This is probably the most profound podcast I could ever imagine myself doing because it's real that without you on the other side of this room, reaching out to me, being, I called it waylaid. You've been waylaid by something in you that I exemplify. That's all this is. No, see, you felt like you had to connect. You felt like you had to come and embrace this energy that I was while not seeing it in yourself. And that's what the brilliance of a friendship is. Because after a while, it goes from that initial feeling to never again do I never need like this because I'm so much like Nick and I'm so much like Tony. I am like this to uh, in others' eyes. So it's perspective. I'm sorry that I took a great deal of time in this intro, <laughs> but I wanted to say coming on to the Spencer Lodge podcast has been a dream of mine since coming back to the United Kingdom. And I told you I was actually going to come down and just meet you. I wanted to just pay that much respect. I told everyone that's connected in our lives how much I love you but it doesn't translate until you get to put arms around a person and share that. So today is my gift to myself. Yeah. I am very, very grateful. Very grateful. Oh, man. Didn't think it was going to start like this. Right, there's a lot of people out there that... Stop. Bring the energy up. Come up here with me, man. <laughs> this is not an emotional time. This is a brilliant, empowering time. Spencer, I saw you on stage rocking the mic. Don't do this. Come back up here with me because I saw what you contribute to and the whole audience was enraptured. Let go of the sheep aside, man. You're a badass in business that makes you have charm and charisma. This is what I teach people. Tap into your neuroplasticity healing. Let go of that sheep aside. Don't worry about the cape moments that feel like you got to strangle yourself with it because it's not working because... You're fighting against God's plan then of accomplishment. My emotions are from gratitude, yes, only from gratitude. I get that. I get that. But I want you up here with me. Raise that chin. Be the man that inspires me. You led me for the last three years of my life to this moment, man. Thank you. Yes, sir. 
Okay, so for all of you awesome people out there that haven't seen, heard of any of Nick's content or the TV show, first of all, where were you and what rock have you been hiding under? (laughs) Secondly, you're about to listen to one of the most incredibly moving, empowering, troubled and also uplifting stories that you will have ever heard in your life. So I'm going to hand this over and allow Nick to tell you and to remind me of his incredible, incredible journey. Nick Harris. Thank you, sir. I am Nicholas James Yaris by birth. I'm 62 years old as I sit before you. And I've just recently moved here to England to restart my life, literally, almost a third time. If you think about it, I had no choice over the previous um, endeavors to start my life. Being born in Philadelphia... I was raised in a family with five other children and my parents were in a working class neighborhood. My grandmother ran the house, Hattie Shaw. What a lady. She was arrested once for bootlegging for the mob. (laughs) She was famous for knocking a cigar down the throat of a boxer by the name of Lefty Hayes, a middleweight. She was ruckus. (laughs) She had 17 children. She was Irish by uh, birth. And my grandfather, Silas Martin, was English. And hence, my love of England. My roots reconnecting empower me in that way. Most of my childhood, as best I could remember, was awesome. Because in the 70s, it was still innocent in the early late 60s, early 70s. Everyone was hippie or mod or rocker. Mods and rockers. <laughs> yeah, you get it, man. So... Unfortunately for me, I had my head bashed in and I was raped at the age of seven. It threw my life into a terrible chaos in a lot of ways because I did the thing that a lot of children do and I kept it a secret. I was so terrorized by this person in my neighborhood because I saw him beat up, you know, adults. He was very strong in my eyes. Like, man, you know, how could you ever deal with something so forceful in nature? And he was a terrible alcoholic. So I had to really be afraid of being in an alleyway or something. And he was drunk and I would just flee in terror. I hated myself so much because of my secret. And I also hated myself because I had to start wearing spectacles. And I changed from a right-handed little boy to a child that had to throw left-handed and my left eye was dominant. My dreams were a terrible mix. I kept envisioning that he would break into my house and kill my dog, Jocko, or my family. That was my biggest fear. So out of reaction to this, I started to punch myself in the legs every day in my basement before I would go outside to, A, build, you know, deal with the fear that I had and stop the fear as best that I could. And I always wanted to be tougher. I didn't know I was gravitating towards, but I became a beast. Let's clock this seven years on. By the time I was 14, I was already stealing, 
doing drugs, alcoholic, violent, kicked out of school, stabbed my teacher by accident with a pen that had been stubbed and stabbed into me by a student. Got put into a, a school for troubled teenagers. Kept getting in trouble. Got arrested and put into the ju juvenile forensic system for juvenile offenders, which is gladiator school. And they trained me how to box, lift weights. By the time I got out of there, after, what, 12 months of that, I was six foot two, 205 pounds, and a heavily well-trained boxer. Bad. I went back to the neighborhood, became an even worse drug addict, an even more violent person. And I confronted my attacker when I was 19 years old, and I freaked out. I couldn't handle it. I saw my attacker coming at me through a wooded area while I was standing on an elevated concrete platform in the sunlight, drinking a quart of beer, and I saw him coming at me, and it hit me. You see, I hadn't seen him since I started going in and out of the system as a juvenile, really, you know, a couple here and there, but not in this state. So here comes my man, about five foot eight, 150 pounds, maybe. I'm well matched to just destroy him. As he got closer and closer towards me, he recognized the jig was up and it was payment day. And in a minute, he capitulated and became the most milquetoast person you can imagine and started pleading with me for understanding about his problems. Oh, Nick, you don't understand. Listen to me. I got all these emotional problems. I can't understand it. I'm sorry for what I did to you as a little boy. And he started begging me, don't hurt me. And it made me sick inside. When I looked at him, who did I see? Come on, Spencer, who did I see? You. Me. I was him. I was the kid beating up adults. I was the violent, nasty, couldn't speak to me. I was so disgusted by the realization that I came face to face with myself that I let him go. And... I went on a binge. I stole a car. I drove 1,100 miles to Miami to get away from myself. I was so disgusted. Mentally, I was ruined. I should have gotten help. I ended up destroying a hotel room in Florida and being subdued and put into a mental hospital at that point. So I spent eight months in a South Florida State Mental Institution being diagnosed with aphasia, the damage done to me by the rock to the head. So aphasia is a really deep thing. Mild forms of stuttering. Uh, full onset forms is Bruce Willis. No cognitive function beyond the immediate. No long-term, yeah, so it's really deep. It can be fallen. Okay. I get out of the mental institution. I go back home. I get a job. I've been sober for nine months. I feel good about myself. They explained to me what my problem was. Stay away from speed because methamphetamine is the one drug that exacerbates your brain. 
I'm doing everything correctly. I get a job at a place called Spencer's. Spencer's Gifts in downtown Philadelphia where they spell, they sell gag gifts and cheap jewelry. So I'm working in Spencer's. I'm dating a girl named Terry. Everything's cool. And then I find out I'm not the only one dating Terry. So I broke up with her. <laughs> I go back home and I meet up with a really good friend of mine and he convinces me because I'm so down about this Come on, just a little bit. And I did just a tiny bit, and that was it. I started getting completely hooked on methamphetamine again. I stole a car on December 4th, 1981, and the Philadelphia police caught me, and they beat me savagely after I made them chase me for half a mile. 11 days later, 14 days later, December 19th, 1981, I was in another stolen car hiding out of my head. But this time I was so paralyzed with fear I wouldn't run. And this is the crazy thing. Like the first beating ripped up all my mouth and stuff. So I, I was in panic. The aphasia that I have in my brain wouldn't let me communicate or function to understand language or anything. All I saw was the blue flashing lights. I'm a traumatic 20-year-old kid who's blown out his mind on drugs, and I, I sat still. And that was what unfolded badly for me because the officer ripped me out of the car, put his forearm against my throat, yelling at me the whole time. I'm starting to get cognitive recognition of everything, but I can't breathe because he's got his forearm on my throat, my head pressed back against the car. So I slapped it away, his hand, and then I saw immediately he was going to reach for the nightstick. I followed that, took his nightstick off him. And I'm like trying to stay up on him, but not trying to hit him. And I'm just trying to stop him from aggressively hitting me. He reaches for the pistol. That's when I put both hands on his arm and I pushed downward and I stupidly made the gun discharge. And that's what changed my whole life at that moment. Officer Dan, um, Benjamin Wright was the son of the former mayor he eventually would be fired from his job for being a criminal. But right at that moment, he was just one pissed off cop. And he made up a big, huge story and changed the dynamics of my life by thinking, I'm going to get this guy. So instead of the following story that I just told you, he said, instead, I jumped out of my car and ran 50 feet back. By the time he had a chance to react, Spencer, I had his gun out after punching him in his face and breaking his eyeglasses and all this. And I was like, what? Yeah, but he heroically overpowered me on the way to my car where I was abducting him to murder him. Does this make sense to you? No. no you abduct the police officer and put him in your car? No. Okay. Right. Well, I didn't make sense to me either, but I was standing before a judge at 3 a.m. that night. I was so embarrassed, I, I gave a false name. I went to jail under the name of Nicholas Pollock. I was so determined not to ruin my parents' Christmas four days from then. I didn't want to be in the newspaper. That's all I did it for. Mm. I was so embarrassed for my family who finally believed in me that I finally got sober and I was treated in a hospital and he's doing so good and I was hiding it from him. They didn't even know I was getting high. 
So I was so embarrassed, I actually didn't even give my real name when I got arrested. So the last thing I remember from that point was detox. And in that time, they just left you in an empty cell with a rubber mattress until you got your mind back from whatever drugs you're on. I mean, I don't care if you're on heroin, whatever. You have to go cold turkey. There's no drug treatments in the 80s, you know? I woke up, and every time I woke up, I kept seeing that newspaper. It was the December 15th, 1981 newspaper that was left in my cell by the previous occupant that described the rape and murder of a woman in the area by the name of Linda May Craig. She was abducted from her job in Wilmington, Delaware, where she was selling glass figurines during the holidays for her family to have Christmas presents. Someone knocked her out of her shoes in the car parking lot. Her watch was broken on her wrist at 4.05 p.m. She was driven a few miles from the state of Delaware into the state of Pennsylvania, where she was violently sexually assaulted and then stabbed multiple times and then thrown out into the night behind a church where her car would be found two miles away. I never met the woman. I never knew any of this. But I was sitting in prison because someone lied. And that was infuriating to me. I didn't mind going to jail for the stolen car. I didn't, you know, I, I was a criminal. I was okay with paying my dues. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Mm-hmm. But I wasn't a violent, I wasn't doing armed robberies or nothing. I was just a simple car thief to get drugs to get high. I, anyway, I thought if I make up a lie bigger than the lie that put me on this situation, surely I can get out of it. In my mind, I picked out my worst enemy, a guy named Jimmy who had rolled me up in a rug with two of his friends and kicked me a whole bunch of times and drove me around in a pickup truck and they were going to blow my brains out and they threw me out behind the Westinghouse warehouse in the snow and left me there. I figured, since a friend of mine just told me Jimmy's dead, make up a story. Tell them Jimmy did it. While they're out running around looking for Jimmy, get out of here. Oh, my God. The first time I told any of them was a guard saw me sitting on the bed. And he was like, what's wrong with you, man? What's wrong with you? And I told him, I think I have information about this case. And I handed him the newspaper. He went flying down the block, got everybody. Next thing you know, I'm ready to go home. The detectives came and told me they spoke to my arresting officer who agreed he overcharged me. He was willing to reduce my charges to resisting arrest. I would be taken back to Philadelphia for the stolen car and prosecuted there, but I would be released on my own signature from Delaware County, Pennsylvania, if what I said was true. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, my God, this is real. I sat there for three days waiting for them to come back. They moved me out of solitary confinement, put me in general population. I'm walking around having lunch and everything. Everything's cool. I'm going home. Spencer, when they came back, they had it in their mind. They weren't angry at me for making up a lie. They were just going to give me this case. Just pin you on it. Yeah, that was my punishment. Like, 
not crack his knuckles for making up a story and trying to get out of jail. Because the first thing I did was confess that I was just made. And I said, and I pleaded with him. I said, didn't you get it? When you spoke to the officer, he even admitted he overcharged me. And this is all wrong. I said, can't you understand why I would do this? They said, what conversation? You know, we don't remember the conversation. I was like, no, that's cowardly, man. So they started taunting me about my childhood. They started taunting me about my brain. They started humiliating me about my girlfriend leaving me. For 13 hours, they tortured me. And I didn't confess. They took me back to jail. And in one of the most sinister moves ever, Detective Randy Martin, taking the handcuffs off me, gave me a hug and told me, that's great, Nick. We're going to go kick some doors in. Like, I'm not in the same holding cells with members of the Pagan Motorcycle Gang. The next morning, the attacks began, didn't they? A sharpened broom almost took out my eye. Dude threw a bunch of bleach and urine in my face, all powdered bleach and all in my eyes and everything. I had to hold my mattress up to my cell door for hours while men walked by and tried to get to me. The guards didn't see anything. They didn't want to do no paperwork. And every time it was my turn to come out for two hours exercise, whoever was standing in my door was going to bleed. I don't care if you did something to me or not. That's how full on crazy I was. So they put me in um, this cell right up at the front of the guard's desk with a double lock. Kept me away from everyone. But the torment every night was, since the guard left, that was it, all night long, keeping me awake, torturing me, torturing me. Promised me to go to my family's house. If I didn't kill myself, they were going to kill my mom. That's all they kept saying. And it was this one, and it's crazy. The man I'm about to describe later on, I did his legal work and got six years cut off his sentence. But he kept promising to murder my mom and send members of the gang to my my family's house and, and kill my mom if I didn't kill myself. So I hung myself. And the guard cut me down. And he said, you're not cheating the state of Pennsylvania out of your punishment. You know, I've never told anybody this. That's crazy. All the interviews. But that's the reason I hung myself. They kept yelling it all night. Kill yourself. Kill yourself. Kill yourself. Wake up, bitch. Wake up, Nikki. Nikki the rapist. You like going out and killing women because they look like your girlfriend. I endured a lot of that. So I'm in the hospital. My mom comes to visit. And she said, I don't understand any of this. I don't know what you're doing. But whatever it is, you come home to me. Stop this. Don't hurt yourself. People are trying to hurt you. When She always had these things. She said, Nikki, when people are trying to hurt you, don't join the parade. You know, people should listen to that lesson because there's a lot of people on the Internet doing that to them. And yet they join the parade by being affected by it or listening to it or even absorbing it and embracing it. Anyway, my mother had to endure men grabbing their genitalia and mocking her while she sat next to me and saying vulgar things about how she should give me oral sex and shit. When I heard that, 
disgusting. I knew I was going to go back and change and fight. But I had overwhelming odds against me. First, I had to face trial for the attempted murder and kidnapping of the police officer. And in April of 1982, they gave me a trial with a jury. I thought I was going to prison for life like they promised me. But the jury saw through the lies of the police officer, and they found me not guilty within 15 minutes of their giving the case to deliberate. When they came back that fast, everybody's like, damn, they didn't even give you a break. Everyone was gobsmacked, but I kept noticing that when they walked in, all the jury looked at me. They knew this wasn't right. The prosecutor who handled the case, Barry Gross, exploded at the moment of realizing he had lost a huge case and his career just took a sink. And so what does he do? He throws the case file against the chamber's wall of the judge's entrance and turns to me and says, you're never leaving this county alive. And that was it. The very next week, Barry took over the murder case where he had no involvement and he began seeking the death penalty against me out of vengeance for losing that trial. That was so much power that he had. Mm. So how could they do this? They got an inmate by the name of Charles Michael Catalino, a heroin addict who was convicted by a jury of burglarizing the prosecutor's home, William Ryan. William Ryan was handling the homicide case. Coincidentally, Charles Catalino was in a cell next to me for one night and said, I confessed the whole thing to him. That's what they used to have to go to trial against me. Mm. This is crazy. So it's June 1982, and I'm facing trial for a homicide of a woman I never made based on a lie that I'd made up, based on a lie that I also have to face someone else making up in the form of Charles Catalino saying I confessed to him and the worst luck of all. The killer had B-positive blood. And in 1982, all we had was serology. Serology is blood work so we can do blood typing and categorize our blood groups for the safety of surgery and stuff. Yeah, well, I have B-positive blood like the man who did the murder. The greatest moment of my life happened during the trial when they showed photographs to Mr. Craig and part of the exhibits in the trial were where one of them was where Mrs. Craig was found. Mm -hmm. She was found on a night that it was raining and then began snowing. The next morning in virgin snow, Two children walked up to what they thought was a mannequin laying in the snow, mm -hmm. and they found Mrs. Craig in that position where she was eventually found. The horror of it was she had bled so much that they were standing in blood. When the children realized that they were standing in blood, they obviously ran in horror in opposing arcing form. Yeah, directions, yeah. Laying there from an elevated position of a photograph, it looked like the outline of an angel. At the conclusion of showing that man his wife and him breaking down in tears, just then a bolt of lightning struck the courthouse and knocked all the power out. 
The sheriffs jumped up with their pistols as if I had something to do with this. Everything went into Klieg lights. And as I'm standing there and like, what the hell? They hustle me out of the courtroom like I'm trying to stage an escape. And they get me upstairs. No matter, the jury now knows I'm in custody. Yeah. I go upstairs and they put me in this big, wide holding cell above the courthouses, uh, uh, the courtrooms. In this position, I was able to look down on a big open court uh, area, like a giant courtyard with small fruit trees and everything. Just, it would have been beautiful, except but everyone was forced out of the buildings because of the lightning strike and the possible fire. I was looking at all these people, and as I did in my head, I heard something tell me to look them in the eye. Go back and look at them in the eye. It was like instructing me almost. There was no words. I went back in, and not one person could look at me anymore that was on the jury or behind the bench. Uh-huh. As his honor pronounced me guilty, he couldn't look me in the eye. As he convicted me of rape, kidnapping, and murder, he couldn't look me in the eye. He then began to pronounce sentencing, which was the death penalty, plus he was going to aggravate my situation and add another 60 years to my sentences so that if they didn't succeed in putting me to death, I would never get out of prison again. Again, never looking me in the eye. When I began with shaky legs at 20 years old to address the court, I said, Your Honor, look at me. He wouldn't. I said, You know and I know it's not possible for me to have killed someone and been back home in my mother's kitchen table having dinner in 26 minutes, man. That's not possible. I didn't kill anyone, but there's no point arguing with you because I know you won't listen. He said, do you have anything else to say? I said, look at you. You can't even look me in the eye and you're about to sentence me to die. Because he kept looking off to the side. He wouldn't even look at me like this. Do you have anything else to say? Couldn't even dine me with the time of effort to speak to me. I said, yes, sir, you can go to hell. (gasps) The whole courtroom. I, I, I was serious. If you can't look me in the eye while pronouncing that I should have my life, because he very fervently said, Nicholas James Harris, having been convicted of rape, murder, and kidnapping in the state of Pennsylvania, you're going to be taken to Rockview State Prison where 33,000 volts of electricity will be pumped through your body until you're sufficiently dead. Do you understand this? Never once look me in the eye. You're going to say something like that. Mm. Have the courage to look me in the eye is what I felt. And I heard something in my head telling me that. There's no other way I can explain how I've outlived all of the jury at this point. The judge is dead too. The man who pronounced me to death is long now past. 
But his punishment was to send me to Huntington State Prison out of the area where they sent men to be broken at that time because there was no death row. I was the second youngest person in the state of Pennsylvania sentenced to death. I was 21 years old when I walked in there and got my first beating. I would spend my next two years in total silence being beaten and tortured and beaten and tortured. After four years on the way to court, inadvertently I escaped in one of the most crazy scenarios you can imagine, being transported to court with the hope and upbeat feelings of, yes, the Supreme Court of the United of Pennsylvania sent my case back to the trial court for all the errors. I'll give you simple ones that are easy to understand. The woman was abducted in the state of Delaware. Mm. You can't put someone on death row using an abduction of kidnapping in the state of Pennsylvania when it happened in Delaware. I was convicted of the underlying felonies, and they were used as what's called aggravating factors to put me on death row from another state. That's an instant new trial. Everyone's up in arms. Delaware, does that have the death? Doesn't matter. She wasn't killed in the state of Delaware. Okay. She was killed in the state of Pennsylvania. So by law, corpus delicti law is you try the case where the body is found. She was obviously murdered in Pennsylvania and assaulted there behind the church. But she was kidnapped where her shoes were found in the parking lot in the state of Delaware mm-hmm. where her car was next to. Yep. So I'm all upbeat. I'm looking forward to a new trial. This time they have to hand over the 33 pages of missing pages from the homicide file we never got. There was so much destruction of evidence. Where were the gloves that were in a photograph? The the victim's car was found parked with the interior lights on and a pair of men's winter leather gloves left on a seat like a taunt to the police. What happened to them? Mm. You see, as a Mm. drug addict, and genetically having large hands, they knew the gloves wouldn't fit me. I didn't know any of this. All I knew, I was getting a new trial. Well, sir, as is my luck, we stopped to go to the restroom. We pull up to the pumps, which is about 60 feet, 70 feet from the toilet cubicles, and I get out of my automobile with them, my prison eyeglasses fog up. I go from a warm exterior car to getting out, and you know this one, I can't see. I go into the cubicle, and now as I'm breathing, the fog of my breath is coming up in my face while I'm trying to aim, Mm -hmm. can't see. Mm -hmm. I turn around, this is so brilliant that you're sitting there and you get this as someone who wears spectacles. I can see his shape, I can see his arm, And I do the thing where I go under his arm while he's holding the door for me, Mm -hmm. but I can't see. Mm -hmm. And I know where I'm going. He's got me in the right direction, and I Uh can see the outline of the car. Uh But now, I don't know that the dude's turned around. I see his figure at the front of the car. Mm -hmm. He's got his back to me. I think he's got his front to me. I'm doing what I told. Boy, at the last minute, he says, haul ass. I start trotting to the car. Guy turns around, sees me running at him thinks I've overpowered his partner. I didn't know his mindset would be, there's no possible way I'm watching the unescorted death row prisoner come at me unless he's overpowered my partner. That's my training. Yeah. And that's what he said. So I pulled out my pistol and I fired. Literally, 
all I saw was his arm coming out. And then when the shot went off, I was like, whoa. So I have my hands cuffed. I have to turn and start running, but you can't get the locomotive feeling of throwing your arms in rhythm with your legs. And going downhill is the easiest way to go out of control when your hands are tied. And I did. And I went down. Tied real, behind you or in front of you? In front. They let me have him in front so I could wee. Man. He fires the second shot. Whizzes past me. I turn. I try to run towards a large restaurant window, pretending I was going to jump through the window if I had to, just to get him to stop. I then ran and I hid behind his police car. I did a full circle turn, came back behind their vehicle and laid in the ground. And I began vomiting because of the exertion and shock. Look, when someone pops a cap right in your face, it's the most overwhelming thing because of the force around the shot, Mm -hmm. not just the bullet. Mm -hmm. It's the whole thing. It's the supersonic blast of it that close to your face because he just missed me, man. I couldn't have been more than eight feet from him when he fired. He thought I was coming at him. Okay. I get the handcuffs off by taking my eyeglasses off, and I pick the Glock on the cuffs. After wearing them for three solid years, I knew how to get out of them. I get up on my knees. I go hide behind a police station. I'm pretty cool there for a minute until someone sees me leaving the building and reports it as a possible sighting and a helicopter comes. Now, I described how cold it was. It was actually sub-zero temperatures. The coldest night of the year in 1985 was on February 15th, 1985, because I bore witness to it. Over the next four hours, I would run through the woods, and I mean without fear or trepidation of what the branches would do to me because there was a 20,000-pound vehicle with giant blades above me pushing me. Thankfully, it was so bitterly cold that the forward-looking infrared wasn't working and all we had was a million candle watt light to light up the earth. But every time he came down close to me, he stirred up all this new snow and it kept obliterating his vision. On and on it went, on and on it went. At one point, he had me and it was dead to rights. I came out of some buildings and he just popped out of out of nowhere. The blades were so close to my head, I felt them pushing my head forward as he was at an angle coming down on me, pushing after me. It turns out it was a former Vietnam War pilot who had thrown many, many sorties and was good at this. Mm -hmm. As I ran ahead, I saw a chain link fence and I thought, there's no way I'm scaling a chain link fence. But I didn't know that the snow plows had made a gap in that fence by plowing the snow up against it. So when I ran, I got to the berm of snow, tripped and fell and slalomed headfirst 200 yards down under that fence. (laughs) The fence was just the beginning of the side of a railroad track. I went all the way down face first, feeling all the snow, waiting for the impact, waiting for the impact. None came. And I stopped and I was completely buried in snow and I laid still 
while the chopper went over me and he couldn't figure out where I went. He just thought I was still up there because he kept circling that lot. And he kept circling that lot thinking I'm still up, up top. I shook off the snow and I went to my left and I walked five miles to Fraser, Pennsylvania. I stole an automobile and I drove to New York City after getting some money from a family member. Spencer, I was now on the 10 most wanted list of the FBI from going to court for a new trial. Mm -hmm. What a rocket ride. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I didn't know what to do. I had this urge to go to ABC, NBC, or CBS News in New York City and burst in, and I'm going to sit down and tell my story. In reality, I would never have gotten near a microphone. No one was going to listen to a 24-year-old <coughs> kid. My face looked horrible. I had all these scratches all over the place. Mm. I saw two gay men in a hair salon in a really sweet and warm embrace as I walked past their shop and I caught sight of my face with all the scratches and everything. Mm -hmm. In an instant, I don't know where it came from, but I had an inspiration and I just burst into the slot. I came into the door and I pretended I was all emotional and I kept telling him, help, help. My boyfriend's beat me up. Look what he's done to me. You got to help me. And these two lovely men sat me down in a chair and they took over. They applied makeup to all my wounds. Oh, I had them all on my neck. Hair. Oh, man, it was terrible. They dyed my hair, permed it, <laughs> got their friend who owned an optometrist shop to make me new eyeglasses. Mm -hmm. Within four hours, I looked totally and utterly unrecognized. Changed then. Yeah. So that night, I went into a restaurant in New York, and I hustled the cat chick girl for a men's fur coat by pretending I was all in a real hurry. Hurry, my father and I just left. He, the cab's outside, please listen. It's the gray one down there. It's no, 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 that's it. And then I saw fur. That's it. Yes, it's a men's coat. You could look inside, and it was a men's fox fur coat. So five and a half, ten grand. Mm, not cheap. I know. And homeboy left his wallet. <laughs> so... I got on an airplane. I went to his house and robbed his house. Wow. Yeah. Where did he live? In Orlando. So you flew down to Orlando? I flew down to Orlando in his name with his credit cards. You didn't need to show ID. Then I went to his house hoping to steal money and there was nothing there. <laughs> I know. So I end up in a pawn shop and a guy wants me to rob his friend and all this stuff. It's just getting worse. Spencer, I spent 25 days waiting to wake up and get my head blown out. You have to understand, this is shoot on sight. Mm -hmm. This isn't arrest this man. Mm -hmm. Armed and extremely dangerous, mm -hmm. shoot on sight. I mean, there was Muammar Gaddafi, number nine, and then there was me right underneath him. Wow. I'm thinking, yeah, escape death row prisoner. Yeah convicted of a sexual attack that was mentally driven, no one's given me a break. I turned myself back in. I knew I couldn't beat this. I was so deflated that I wasn't as clever that I thought I could be just because I, you know, tried. I don't know. I had to go back. They actually took me from the county jail in, in Volusia County to Orlando 
And they sat me at a big, long table like this with all the major crimes investigators from the state of Florida, the FBI, and Pennsylvania. There was 20 of them there, at least. And they tried to clear their books. Do you understand what that means? No. They tried to get me to confess to num- case after case after case. We found the blonde hair in the car, Nick. Uh, Tell us about the girl that you killed, that you that was abducted on this date on 1795, that road that you were on at that date. I was like, what? They literally were going through their books trying to get me to confess. They, they, one dude even said to me, stop the tape. Stop the recording. He said, look, you got the death penalty. We're about to drop the hammer on you for the crimes that we got you here in Florida. Yeah. Just make it easy on yourself and just say yes a whole bunch of times and we can get out of here. Otherwise, we're going to be here all day. So the next case we're going to ask you about, just say yes. The most difficult thing about turning myself in in Florida was I had to be put on death row down there before I was sent back to Pennsylvania. It was a very deep experience. I was next to and met a man named Jesse Trefero. Jesse Trefero was actually innocent. His wife, Sonny Jacobs, and he picked up a hitchhiker who killed a cop at a rest stop and blamed it on them. He was savvy enough to understand the law. He was a criminal. Sonny got released. Jesse got executed. I tell her the story when I met her, when I finally survived. But I met this beautiful, long-haired Buddhist came up to me in the holding tank and told me, Nick, can you get me to Pennsylvania as a witness on your case, man? They're going to kill me. I was like, man, I'll put you down, but I don't think they're going to... He said, I'll do anything to get out of here. They're going to kill me. And he did. So I go back to Pennsylvania. I'm 27 years old. By the time anything comes back to reality for me because they beat me so bad I got bitter. They beat me for four minutes, man. With clubs. I didn't leave my... People people wouldn't get that. I'll give you an idea. Beating someone for four minutes, it's like asking somebody to do a speech for four minutes. To talk nonstop for four minutes for most people is an incredibly overwhelming period of time when you have to do it. Imagining it doesn't sound like too much. If someone beats you, four guys, yeah? Five. Five guys all take a kick or a swing at you. That's a matter of three seconds, four seconds, five seconds max. So to be beaten for four minutes. Up and down my legs so I would never run again, they said. So I was beaten on the back of my legs. Then they paraded me around on that big riot stick with my hands cuffed behind my back and displayed me in these giant windows that were being looked upon by the death row prisoners. This is what happens when you escape and embarrass us. So they broke my teeth. They've shattered my face. I have a broken mandible. Uh, It keeps breaking. Detached my retina, broke the transverse bone in my lower back. I couldn't really walk right for about four months, and I didn't stop peeing blood for a long time. Wow. 
they whooped me. They did. And I was so bitter. I started cursing God and getting angry and all this stuff. I don't know what began it, really. But at that point, I decided I was going to read all the world's religions and prove it to myself that there ain't nothing up there or there's nothing real. So I read Islam, I read Shinto, I, I read Sanskrit, I read them all. I was driving the chaplain crazy because a lot of the textbooks for different religions are very difficult to get a hold of. So I did the best I could, but I ended up reading all of the major religions and some of the subgroupings. When I finished the three-year effort of doing that, a guy named Sheffield, convicted of 18 rapes, was throwing a newspaper away from the previous Sunday so he could receive that Sunday's newspaper. Can't have two newspapers in your cell at one time. Uh-huh. He asked me if I wanted the newspaper, and I said yes, and the guard passed the newspaper from his cell front to mine. And again, here we go. The headline was 1988 Philadelphia Forensic Science Convention welcomes DNA. And there's a picture of Sir Alec Jeffries from the University of Leicester here in this country who invented DNA based on the Colin Pitchfork homicide where a man in Leicestershire killed a girl and he took all the blood tests for every male between a certain age group in Leicester, in Leicestershire County, and he proved that Colin Pitchfork did the murder. Historic. I started shaking. I was so clever by then because I had already begun my education. I knew I was holding essentially the keys to my own cell in my hands and I could go free. I immediately launched an effort to do the DNA testing. I am historically the first man in the United States from death row to seek DNA testing and filed my first application in February of 1988, six years after I was condemned. My lawyer was dumbfounded, said, yeah, you can't believe this, Nick, but I just got off the phone with the prosecutor. I mean, uh, the, I might do apologize. I got on the phone to my lawyer and he told me how he just spoke to the coroner, who's the custodian of the trial evidence, and he was really encouraging. He said that the, the, the coroner especially was impressed by my asking for this, and he had all the evidence from trial ready for testing, and he would be supportive of this effort because it's in his favor to get it right. That was Friday. He spoke to the lieutenant standing next to me and agreed that, when he got done speaking to the prosecutor's office for permission, Monday, it would all be shipped mm -hmm. and tested. I'm thinking I'm months away from going home. This is 1988. Uh -huh. I got on the phone Monday, and it's a different tone. My lawyer's like, got some news for you. And then he starts reading his crib notes from what happened. Yeah. And he starts telling me that all the evidence is gone. It's all been destroyed there's no physical evidence for DNA testing left. I'm like, what are you talking about? You just told me on Friday, you were describing various forms of it. 
No, I was describing what someone told me they had. I said, well, where's it at then? You know, all these arguments, but no one... That began a 15-year effort to destroy the evidence and murder me. Cold, calculating. I found in sidebar transcripts, they sent evidence out for serology, B positive, to a private lab. I wrote to the head of the lab, Dr. Muhammad Tahir, writes me back personally, not my lawyers or anyone. Dear Mr. Yaris, I do have preserved slides with natural to the eye, well-preserved spermatozoa visible. And they were preserved in a, a slide case that is sealed so it will not be damaged. I'm dancing. Because he's got it. it coming back to you. He's like, I've got that stuff there. So when the lawyer's telling you it's just destroyed, you're now, you now know it isn't, so you've got happy days. So the detective goes up there without a court order and takes that evidence off of Dr. Tahir and puts it in his locker, in his desk. He's not the custodian. He's not the, he's not the coroner. I would wage a battle in court for those slides to be turned over. Three years after picking them up, there was no visible evidence on those slides. Sorry. So they were just trying to... To murder me. Literally. Over and over. After the escape, they found the judge's address in my possessions. They found the prosecutor's address is in this, my... Is this not as much a miscarriage of justice as it is a, a, a phenomenal example of, of corruption within these forces? You have to understand the mindset. They unify when they're attacked. You can't attack the judicial system without them all coming together against you. It is, for a reason, the state of Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Nicholas James Harris. 12 million versus one. Mm -hmm. And they take that very seriously. So, I went really hard at this. I got the help of the federal prosecutor's office in 1990s, and I was blessed with a former professor of law. And for seven years of his life, he helped me do the impossible in the United States judicial system where I appealed to the I appealed to and was allowed to proceed in the federal courts while my state court process was being waylaid. Could have kicked me out at any minute, but they didn't. And they gave me every chance because they weren't local, were they? They especially, they brought in the president judge from the state of Delaware to come to Pennsylvania and handle my federal court case because of the prejudice against me in Philadelphia. My prosecutor was working in that building. My judge had became a federal judge. They but all you, got a bump. But, but do you take some responsibility for creating a bit of a criminal name for yourself and and knowing that there's people that are criminals that the police know, they interact with on a regular basis, you know, and, and, and the police or the, the these forces will argue that these people are just menaces mm. okay they're either troubled or they're menaces and and very little compassion when described is used it's kind of like yeah you know what he steals cars he does drugs he's i mean he, he's he's a 
pain in in society's backside. He's one of those kind of guys, you know. And and, and okay, it's petty in terms of you know. There's, there's, but there's, I accept there's no all rape that. And murder. Yeah, no. This is what my question is. So these police forces would often talk about you as being a bit of a troublemaker. So when it comes to being compassionate towards you or empathetic towards you, understanding when there's potential evidence that will clear you, a couple of things happen. Number one is like, well, it's he's Nick done Yaris, it so you know? much. It's yeah, Nick he's Yaris, done it so yeah? much. It's Nick yeah. Yaris, for Christ's sake, you know, really. And the other one is if we go through this whole process of proving that Nick Yaris didn't do it, then we've got to start again finding out who did do it. And then we've got to convict, and we've got to convict somebody for to do it. Then we've got to deal with the fact that the there's a miscarriage of justice. Then we've got to deal with the fact that the family still have got a lost loved one. It's really brilliant that you bring this up because here's an aspect never before covered: the fear. When I began seeking DNA, Gary Godshock sentenced to 163 years, got out, and it was on the Phil Donahue show and all these others. <laughs> Oh, my God. They were so terrified that a death row prisoner had gotten wrong. In America, they had never had an innocent death row prisoner, proven innocent, post-mortem or post-release. Like, they hadn't had that that. You were the first. I was the first. I was technically the first. But so there's, I, there's miscarriages of justice. There's someone that goes to jail for 25 years for a crime he didn't commit, and he comes out, he sues the prison service, whatever it may be. You were the first one that was on death row. Right. No one else. Would be and on that's death the row. whole thing because until that point, no one had gotten it wrong in any state. So they all had that armament that the death penalty is not wrong. They had arguments about, and I know people they killed Jesse Trefero, uh, Willie, Cl- um, uh, what was it, Willie Darden in uh, Florida. They put him to death he, for murdering a preacher. He was 17 miles from the crime scene. Like they got it wrong, but there was no biological proof that they got it wrong. In fact, they wouldn't test anyone's case that's been executed. They were terrified of that. This is such a monumental thing. They were terrified if I proved my innocence from death row, it would undo the death penalty in Pennsylvania. Now you get why they were menacing. So there's, there's, then there's the decision makers in this hierarchical structure. There's the ones that are exposed to you on a relatively frequent basis, okay, that are like, here's a pain in the ass. But they're not, they're not the movers and shakers. Then you go up and the, whoever the chief inspector is, he's reporting into somebody above him. And so, so it goes up to a certain point where it's like, we don't want this to become a problem. Right. And someone just makes the decision at that level, it gets filtered down as to that decision's being made, end of discussion, that's what's happening. And regardless, regardless now, it's too late. Mm. And I'm really sorry, Nick, but that's the way it is. No. Would would you argue that that's, or would you agree, that there are many examples like that across the United States in the prison system? Let's take them at their word. Ready? The United States judicial system, the Office of Accountability, recognizes that the United States as a court system gets it right between 95 and 97% of the time. Okay, so say 97%. There's 3% of the time you get it wrong. Okay, how many cases are tried every year? Two million people are incarcerated. A year? 
No, there are two there million are people two million. right now. There are two million people. So that means there are 60,000 people yeah. sitting in prison right now who are completely innocent, according to the government. At least. At least. And if it's 5%, we're talking 140,000. So if it goes up, if it's, say it's 12%. Boy, let's just stick then we're with, talking let's, over 160,000 people's let's just, lives, well, man. Let's just stick with the 60,000. Let's say the lowest. Let's say it is the lowest. 60,000. 60,000 people. So perspective on that is that is everybody in Manchester United's football stadium. There you go. On a home match. That's how big that Innocent. is. Innocent. Okay. think about their families impacted. So yeah. how many family members? Say three per family. Yeah. So then you're the talking 180,000, yeah. 180,000 you people. Now you've got... Now you've got I know. Now you've got four, four, four of the biggest stadiums. And on the other side of it, you have another football stadium of all the people who've been lied to. If those people are innocent, then the person who did it got away with it, and the whole football stadium of victims is on the other side. Oh, you've got that. You've got 60,000 times they got it wrong. 60,000 times they got it wrong for both sides. And 60,000 crooks that are still on the street. Now, you can't expect them to get it right every time. Exactly. But there's clearly the system that's been designed. When they get it wrong, or if there's a chance that they've got it wrong, should have been much quicker to address the, oh, you've got some new evidence. Well, hold on a minute here. If you have some new evidence, we, we've got this case. We've charged it is what it is. He's been in jail for three years, but you've got your new evidence. Okay, look, the process is 90 days until the evidence can get submitted, uh, this new evidence uh, uh, to argue against whether this, this uh, conviction was right. But it doesn't. It takes years. Because you're forgetting something, and you should know this. What is the fifth largest business in the United States? The, the, the prison system. Penology. Mm, penology, yeah. Penology is the fifth largest industry. As a business, what are you most subjected to when your product fails? Insurance claims. Yeah. So you Suing keep forgetting the prison service. this yeah. is a business. Yeah. As a business, you have a bottom line. Yeah. You don't do certain things in your business because it underlies the destruction uh, of your yeah. business model. Right. So let's take this as what it is, a business. In a business, if you have a dissatisfied customer, you turn them down by the hundreds and you grant 7% or 6% relief. Just like an insurance company. Yeah. Right. So we get this. That's the mindset of corporation penology. When you're thinking about the bottom line, they were more terrified that I was going to get money than being wronged. They couldn't care about the victim to the point I had to get a bullhorn when I got out of prison and go back to the courthouse and fight for her. Every year inside that cell, I determined to try and pay for my wronging her direction of justice, pay for my deviating her getting justice. And I paid for it mentally, and I punished myself for what I did, making up a lie about someone's murder is the wrongest thing you can do, and I paid for it. When I got out, I got a bullhorn to prove the point. I went fighting for the victim. I, as the man who was wronged and almost murdered, shouldn't have been the one out there fighting for the victim. But I did. I tried to have that within me. But I realized 
I was set up to fail. You see, I was going to be a huge challenge to the end of the death penalty if I would succeed in getting the DNA. So they did everything that they could to murder me. It culminated with my own health deteriorating so badly with hepatitis from the beating. I thought I couldn't allow myself the indignant way of dying with prison staff torturing me. His name was Dale Carter. I wasn't there the day that he was accused of raping and murdering a woman. But I was there on his last few days when his impacted bowels wouldn't pass through any materials and he was dying, choking on his own bile while the nurses delighted in tormenting him. I didn't want to have someone indulging in schadenfreude like that on me. I had fought so hard to become a dignified person, I thought. Why let them do that to you? You have the same diseases, stale. You already have renal failure. They blinded you in your cell. They made you so sick with the toxins from interferon and rivaviron combinations. Go. Just go ahead and kill yourself, but do it cleverly. And then it came to me, oh, shit, I'm sitting on a bomb. I got all the power in the world. I don't have to hurt myself. All I got to do is give up. They've been doing it for years, Spencer, every month. This is what's called the Program Review Committee. They bring you in handcuffs and leg irons. The table's been bolted to the floor from the previous people coming in and trying to hurt them. It's a mental game. They read off all of your charges and the victim's name, reminding you of what you did. They humiliate you by trying to get you to complete a form telling them what to do with your body when they execute you. I never did. And then they get you to try and capitulate, admit to your crimes, and give up your appeal so that you can be executed. They were telling me the whole time I had power. So when I realized my power, I wrote a letter trying to dismiss my lawyers and get on the execution train. I figured I've worked so hard to become a beautiful speaker for only one minute of my life. They were going to either strap me down and pump electricity through my body and kill me, or they were going to strap me, lay me down and pump drugs through my veins. But either way, I was going to get a minute or two to have a beautiful speech. I became so obsessed with this one thing. I learned how to articulate so beautifully what I needed to say in the hopes that I wouldn't falter when they killed me for something I didn't do. That's why I speak as I do. Because think about it. You have three minutes. What are you going to say? And that tortures you. At first, when I went to prison, I recognized how my staccatic, guttural, impatient, uneducated speech pattern was laughable. 
I was overwhelmed with the thought of being killed. What am I going to do? I'm going to piss my pants. I can't say anything. That drove me. That fear. I, I didn't care that I was going to be put to death for something I didn't do. I can't control that. Do you, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to be embarrassed. People used to make fun of me for the way I spoke. I determined... Right then, that was going to be my empowerment. I'm going to derive the most beautiful sense of speaking. And all I have to do to accomplish this is overcome my dyslectic inability to hold and retain much, work through my aphasia, overcome my speech impediment, practice a cadence and a beautiful way of delivering speech so that on the day that they put me to death, I have salvation. I will be unafraid. <laughs> That's all this came from, brother. Mm. I didn't want to be embarrassed when they took my life for something I didn't do. That mad. It's That's how I became. It's like, it's like the fear of public speaking. It's the number one fear most yeah, people have. It's like the, the most overwhelming fear people have. Imagine if it was... While they were being put to death. Oh, fuck. So, like, this, is, this is a whole nother level of it, you know. That's this what is, I was this facing. This is the turbocharged version, you now know. You're you not standing up telling your story and waiting for a round of applause. Okay. You're thinking about all the people you've got to, you've got to um, um, mention, how you've got to mention them. You've got all these people that are important in your life and all, all that kind of stuff. And as you think, and I'm thinking, and so you can correct me, as you're thinking of each person, so your mum or, or, or a family member, it's like, it's the last thing you're ever going to say about them. Yeah. Ever, and you want it. You want them to remember, in the, in the best way possible, based upon how Jeez. you think they take stuff. Finally, my brother. You know how long I've been waiting to have this conversation with someone who finally understands why I'm the most beautiful speaker on the planet. It was for me, for my own hope that this kid that they snatched up off the streets of Philadelphia could find it within him to articulate well past where you were going. You see, it's only about three things. One, I needed to forgive them for not knowing what they were doing. I had to have the empathy first for my executioner so I could forgive them so they wouldn't be as scarred as they possibly could by this wrong that they were doing. Mm -hmm. Feeling that grace in that manner followed by telling them who I'd become. Yeah? Yeah. And then segueing into the analogy of my recognition of who I'd become. You don't have time for thanking the audience or those who got you to that last dance. It's so brutally quick, I can only imagine. You have to stay focused. So I derived this beautiful deaf speech about the analogy part especially that I was like a neutrino passing through the earth. And though neutrinos are a part of nature and they can pass right past us, the hardest surface especially, mm -hmm. doesn't matter. We're ignorant of its beauty. Mm -hmm. We don't understand it. That was the perfect analogy for me to make to them. They were taking my life for something I didn't do. They're ignorant. And I needed to forgive them so that when they pulled the switch, 
I was at peace. That for me, I imagine most people, that's, the, that's one of the toughest things. It is. Finding a way to forgive, yeah. you know, and, and when there is so much injustice, when there is so much pain that has been caused by ignorance and, and piracy, that you've got a way to sit and literally make peace with that, knowing that you are going to die. And I think about this aspect as well, and I'm not sure whether you think about this consciously either, but troubled kid goes to jail. You essentially, while you're in jail, you become arguably the best version of yourself that you've been in your life. You, you, you have time to develop, grow, educate yourself um, and all of these different things. And you, you turn into this n- new 2.0 version of Nick Yaris. And it's like that makes it even worse for me. Because if you were Nick, the troubled kid that was a criminal that turned into Nick, the Yob hooligan, you know, criminal within the jail that was doing even worse there's there's an argument that justifies some of the some of the outcomes but it's like a born again version that has so much value to bring to the world and so much so much to offer that's that's to me the misjustice that's to me the 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 bit that's wrong about this and yet I am so grateful to have gone through it all. <laughs> I literally am. Thank the, God. It's the bit though. God. I am so grateful I spent 8,057 days in solitary confinement because I never felt more alive. Everything was so precious. The glimpse of sunlight on a window refracting that you caught beautiful smell of fresh air after so long taste of bread make your mouth water so much it watered while you were eating when you were describing everything i just had one word over and over torture torture taught me how to love torture taught me how to become humbled and respectful Torture taught me that my anger was the most precious thing I owned and I better not let go of it because it could ruin any chance I had to live. Torture became a way for me to actually feel good about myself. I know that's strange. But imagine this. All your life you felt dirty for who you were. You didn't like yourself. And then someone started torturing you and telling you you're a terrible piece of shit and you deserve this. And inside you know that's wrong. A phenomenon happens. Torture makes you love yourself. I then learned to translate that into forgiving my tormentors. I had a man 
these are the, these are these are life lessons for everybody. It is, and and it's just the, magnified. Yes, absolutely. But these 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 stories, I want people to learn in their own lives. And whilst whilst ninety nine point nine nine percent won't go to prison, and, not, and I would argue one hundred percent will never go to death row. There's a lesson in this for everybody in their own lives, because you want to speak. It's just this one thing. It's for them to want a lesson from it. See, it's easy to complain about the car crash, but you didn't know that car crash stopped someone else from dying where it actually changed your life and you met these new friends. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have met them without the car because mm -hmm. you were on foot. You can't accept the graces. You always cry about the teardrop moment, but you never equate it to reason. Mm -hmm. That... that very finite thing. I'll give you an example. I am making a documentary film about a man I met because a woman spit in another woman's face in a restaurant. Now, that horrible moment where that woman spit in that woman's face for not wearing a mask during the pandemic while serving her food, no less. That ignorant thing where you look up at your server and you're like, you're not wearing a mask. Really? The woman who had her face spit into got me a job at that restaurant. That restaurant gave me food that I brought home in my caravan and a man parked next to me with cancer ate that food. There was so much good that came out of that woman spitting in another woman's face from that moment on. It's now become a documentary and he's on his way to Scotland to finish it. You've seen the trailer and you know all the good behind it. But it only happened because a woman spit in another woman's face. Oh, the absolute joy, the blessing for society be to be able to accept the graces that come from these types of situations. And that's a lesson in itself to maybe stop and think about those as they happen. And I think it's, it's, it's just something as simple as road rage. Someone cuts in front of you uh, on the way to work in the morning. They're stopping um, you from getting hit. Or, guess what? Don't worry. Their wife's just about to give birth. No, even you, better. You know? No, think about I always say this. I'm not in a hurry to get to the accident. Maybe they're stopping me. Ah. So... Maybe you should stop being so quick to get angry and think, oh, damn, God's giving me a reminder. Slow down because that's coming. And it's, it's, all right, look. It's great. You know this. I flipped my car over two years ago. Mm -hmm. Do you want to know what makes me believe in God? Take it away. A muscle. It has no eyes and it has a shell like little shellfish do. And it's dependent upon the big mouth bass in the rivers to survive. A muscle. A muscle. Not a muscle. Not an arm muscle. Okay, seafood. Seafood. This creature, without any eyes, knows somehow that the favorite dietary delight of the big mouth bass is this minnow-like fish who swims in the river. This creature, without eyes, has managed to excrete a membrane from its body that looks exactly like that tiny fish. When the bass comes over and bites this shell 
fish, which is looking like another fish, it shoots its young into the gills of the fish. The great, the big mouth bass now has lungs enriched with oxygen in its gills that are pumping nutrition into the mussels' babies. They cling to the fish, they go downstream until they're big enough, and they drop off. There's no possible way there wasn't a guiding hand in all of that, just like in my life, because no way can an animal without eyes paint a beautiful membrane on its body and create something it's never seen to lure something it's never seen to feed on it so it can get its babies into its gills so that it's without the guiding hand. My life, from the moment the courthouse got struck by a, a bolt of lightning, I've had a guiding hand in my life. I shouldn't have walked away from that wreck, but I didn't break any bones, did I? I got up and went to work the next day. There's no way you can flip a car that many times and it comes apart. And both dogs over 100 pounds went flying out the window. They both not a hurt. And then I keep thinking about this. Every single day of my life, I could pull out my phone and I'm going to show you messages. Romania, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Nepal. They say the same thing as you. Once I've gotten through to that person, that I get the message. Dear Nick, I can't believe you changed my life. I can't believe that after witnessing what you've been talking about, that's not me. You see, I might be the finest speaker in the world about neuroplasticity healing and this gift that I have to come back from utter devastation. Mm -hmm. But there's something going on here, ain't there, little brother? I can't make people connect with me. I'm not the guiding hand in all of this. It's brilliant that I'm part of it, and I feel it. I've literally stopped thousands of people from killing themselves by just appealing to them, and I figured it out. The hairs on your neck stood up not because of what I was saying. That feeling that you had wasn't because of me. It's because you have in you that thing I'm exhibiting that you're gravitating towards. Now, you might not have a great deal of self-belief in it, and that's what and really just blows your mind is when you see someone else have more self-belief in that feeling that you have, that's what pulled you. But you have the exact same thing in you as me. You see, if you were in my situation and that lovely daughter of yours was out there begging you to hold on, you'd hold on. Mm -hmm. Not only that, you'd figure out what I did. You wouldn't suffer without love. You'd become the most loving person. Dare not show her an angry face when she came to visit you, right? I didn't do that for my mom and dad. Mm -hmm. When they came, I was always upbeat. Mm -hmm. I had to sell it like, man. And I'm staying. You want to talk about business sales? Sit before somebody at a table and be bleeding and laughing. <sighs> yeah, man, I got stabbed really bad in the stomach. I couldn't let mom know. Man, I went in there. I was just as unflinching and willed myself while being injured 
for the sake of another person because she didn't need to come there and be traumatized, did she? No. No. They did enough of it she on their she own. had enough trauma, yeah. You know, they used to try and intimidate her to come back and see me by strip searching my own mother. And it was a contactless visit. She wasn't even allowed to hold my hand, man, and still strip searched her. Shame. That was after a five-hour journey. So that just goes to show you they were determined in their efforts, but they Nick, failed. We're, 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 we're two hours in. Who cares? I love you. <laughs> this has been fantastic talking to you. It really has. Um, we've got to find a way of wrapping this up okay, yeah. in the next five minutes so, so that our audience can... Can I do that for you then? And I'd, I'd love you to, yeah, if you can. And leave, leave us with, leave us with a, a final message on the back of all that you've done and all of the lessons that we can learn from you. There was a whirling noise and the mechanics of my door opened up on January 16, 2004. The prison officers were so intimidated that I wasn't in handcuffs, that I was emanating some forceful energy. Everyone stood aback. I was 41 years old. I had just spent 22 years in solitary confinement. And I had to find the courage, wit, and wisdom to rejoin society. I had a prayer at that time. My prayer was that there was going to be people and especially human beings like me outside. And that's who I had worked so hard to become a humble person for, that I would meet them. And then that's my goal, that no matter how much I was tortured or abused, I had found my humanity and I was searching for it when I got out. Of all the times I've been asked to speak, of all the many years that I've gone around the perf world performing in London, Rome, Sweden, I've never gotten a chance to actually say that I've been given a gift. That gift is this. No matter where I am on this planet, there's a man named Spencer Lodge who loves me. No matter where I am on this planet, there's a man named Martin Puchowski in Poland who loves me. That love amongst those two men and many, many others like them is only because they are like me. So as you listen to my voice, I want you all to remember, I am an emulating force of good. You get that? I want good, I strive for good, I pray for good, but it's only with the help of other good men that I'll make my impact on life. None of us ever got here alone. Someone had to feed us until we're strong enough to be bigger, better, and more capable. 
Spencer, you fed me, you cared for me, and you loved me until I was strong enough to deliver this message. You're my hero, a cool little brother, and if I ever catch you going on the slide and thinking about hurting yourself, I would literally get on an airplane to Dubai and whip your ass. <laughs> I love you that much that I can't let you do that. Not knowing now what I know what you're about to accomplish and what you put your ass on the line for. So in the nicest soliloquy possible, here is my thank you to everyone listening. Thank you for being that family member who holds up the ones that are broken. Thank you for being that brilliant friend who also takes on the burden of caring for your friends who aren't doing well. Thank you for being able to share today, although my heart is heavy with the loss of my father and the struggles that I've had to stay alive. I'm probably more brilliantly alive and happy than I've been in the longest time. And I'm so hopeful that 2023 is indeed my comeback year. I have made every effort to do every good thing that I can think to do. And that, I hope, is my message. You are an incredible human being. I'm very, very grateful that you're in my life. Thank you, Nick Harris, for coming to join us today. You're welcome, sir. Thank <laughs> you.